Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right. Welcome to One Revolution's Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, I am joined by Matt Feeney. I met Matt Feeney on a plane ride to New Zealand. We went down there and we were training with the Winter Park program down in New Zealand for a month. We ended up, we were, we were roommates down there. We've been friends for a long time. As a lot of you know, these chats are following our name tags presentations, our four S's of resilience. And Matt is huge in one of the S's, the S of community. He started a program or co-founded a program called Adaptive Adventures where they're taking taking the sport to the people as opposed to making the people come to the sport. And you've done just about every sport, right, Matt? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, everything from scuba diving to skiing to downhill mountain biking, um, hand cycling, mostly individual sports. But yes, uh, I've, I've tried just about every sport. How, how did this come about? Because you started out, you, you and I were, were training down in New Zealand and you did some of the racing and then you were working with the, with the Winter Park program, which is really where, can we say that that's where adaptive skiing in this country really originated at the Winter Park program? It was definitely the, it was definitely the epicenter uh, in the late 80s, early 90s of adaptive skiing. It was the Mecca. Uh, it was the largest program of its kind in the world. And as I found out after a couple years of training there that, you know, there might be six or eight inches of new powder and uh, they would scrape it off and be running gates and they'd be like, uh, well, where's Feeney? Uh, I think he's off in the trees somewhere. So I realized early on that I really, really loved skiing still, even though it was a different, it was adaptive skiing. I just, the racing thing wasn't quite for me, but I just absolutely loved the skiing, the independence it brought back to me and the feeling that I got from skiing. And then of course, trying other sports like hand cycling and water skiing. Um, I just felt that the more active I was and the more sports I could get out there and try, the healthier and the happier I was. And that's what led me to start Adaptive Adventures. I thought, you know, there's got to be other people out there that are trying to find a way to do these sports. And uh, it really, you know, made an impact in my life. So I thought I could try to impact others. So you started like, because you were a skier before your accident, right? You were Correct, but not a ski racer. I was a, I was a freestyler. You know, I was a, I was a bump skier and I did aerials and I was getting upside down on skis when I was 14. Um, just doing all kinds of stuff. But just was never a racer. So when I got hurt and started learning how to mono ski and then went to New Zealand with you, I thought I'd give it a shot, but I was never, you know, it just never clicked with me. But skiing in itself, the whole concept of skiing was, uh, you know, was, was still a good thing. It still, you know, still made my heart beat and, uh, you know, presented some challenges, as you know. I mean, mono skiing is not an easy thing to learn. And you and I picked the probably the, the toughest sport to learn right off the bat. But uh, as soon as they you know, set the gates up and the courses and we started doing that, it was very apparent that that was your niche. And that was 
um, you know, uh, in fact, I remember, you know, the competing against you. And I mean, it was almost like you had to fall for me to even be close to you in the gates. You were, you were something else. And then I said, well, you know what? There's bump skiing and there's tree skiing and there's other kinds of skiing too. And then of course I got involved in teaching. Right. So yeah, I, I, my family moved to Colorado when I was eight years old from New York. So uh, I had to learn fast, uh, catch up with my friends who'd been skiing since they could walk. And so skiing was always part of my life. Yes. Yeah, since I was uh, a little kid. You did that little ski train thing, didn't you? Or not little. Yeah. Did you do the that Eskimo from ski up to Winter Park? The, the Eskimo Ski Club, it was mostly a bus. Okay. But occasionally when the buses weren't running or something, they, we would take the train and we would go down to the Safeway right there, the grocery store and buy a, a dozen donuts for 65 cents and sell them for a buck a piece to all the other kids. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's what we did as kids. And then we went up and, and I never took a lesson. I used the transportation up to Winter Park and then I would, instead of going to my lesson, I would just disappear and, and go ski with my friends. And uh, that's how I learned to ski. Can you describe that train though? Cause it's a train that goes from Denver up to Winter Park, doesn't it? It does, it, it, they discontinued it for a while for various reasons. They brought it back a few years ago. I believe it still runs now. Yeah, it goes right. Um, it, it's, it's great, you can avoid, especially now with the traffic is insane from Denver up to Winter Park. What's normally an, a little over an hour can take you three hours now on a weekend. So the train is the way to go. Um, but yeah, back in the day, uh, we, we took the train a few times and we, uh, you know, we, we had some shenanigans there. You can, you can imagine a bunch of 10, 12 year old kids riding up, riding up the train to the ski area. Um, Your parents yes. putting you on the train, you you're riding up, taking the train home. I mean, it's like fully independent skiing back in the day. Correct. My dad would hand me, hand me, I think it was $12. And that was for lunch, lift ticket, and the train ride. What a good deal. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Granted, this was a couple of years ago. And yeah. then talking about the, the heart, the, you know, the, getting the heart going a little bit. When you were in college, you joined a group of skiers too, didn't you? And, and wasn't there some sort of an initiation that you had to do when you were in college to join this group? Well, there was there was a group of us that were just skiers, and yeah, there was a there was a cliff that we all had to huck off of. It was, you know, back then it was it was about a twenty footer, and you think back when you're eighteen or nineteen, that was something, you know. Now guys are just, you know, they're doing double back flips off stuff like that. But yeah, there was a there was a lot of camaraderie and a lot of pushing each other, you know, who can do what, who's the best skier, and. Um, but again, yeah, I, I set my classes on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays so I could ski on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and then on the weekends. And I also had a PE class called skiing. So I had to be up on the mountain uh, every Thursday at uh, 9 o'clock. Well, you had to get credit, really. Is I had to get credit. I, you, can't, you can't miss class. I'm sure that's the case. What was it like? So, so with, with Adaptive Adventures... What what spurred you to to make that work and to go with such a variety of different sports? Well, it didn't start out like that. Um, it started out um, more like okay, if if you're a person with a disability and you live in this country and you want to learn how to ski, 
even back then, 20 years ago, there were plenty of opportunities. You could go to almost, not, well, not almost, but a lot of ski areas around the country had an adaptive program. And that's how I learned. I went back to Winter Park and I would take my lesson and then I would go home. And it just seemed like there wasn't any real socialization around it. There wasn't, I didn't meet, I had already, I had already skied. In fact, you were only the second monoskier I ever met when we went to New Zealand. I never found anybody to, to ski with or to, um, you know, kind of run some things by each other or, or learn from each other, that kind of thing. So, there, and, the, and there was nothing social about it. And so one of the ideas behind Adaptive Adventures was not only traveling to different um, parts of the country, but different ski areas like, you know, Jackson Hole and Telluride. Our first uh, camp we did in Telluride was in 1999. Before that, the only ski camps in the world for people with disabilities were learn to race camps or race camps specifically for people who wanted to race. We started the first all mountain camp for people that didn't want to race. They wanted to just ski and they wanted to um, socialize and they uh, on and off the slopes. And they wanted, they wanted to ski, but not necessarily focus on uh, competing and making the Paralympic team. So what's, it, what's an all mountain camp mean? Was there instruction or, or what were, were you guys just skiing as a group or how did it work? Absolutely, a little bit of both. I think it was a little bit of trial and error at first. We would break up into groups. And then of course these groups would change as the week went on because we didn't know, you know, people's abilities. And um, so it was, it was a lot of just kind of finding out how, what, what people wanted to do. And we always gave them options, you know, hey, if you want to go um, ski this type of terrain, go with this group, if you want to learn. And there were some good instructors, instructors at that point. You know, when you and I were learning to ski in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the, not only was the equipment pretty, you know, uh, subpar, the, inst there was, the instruction wasn't there. And I'm sure you can relate to that. I remember you, you telling me one time you called Martinson, Jim Martinson, who created the shadow and said, Jim, how do you make this thing turn? You know, I mean, you can totally relate to that. And, and so first things first, when I became an instructor, I made all my volunteer instructors get in the ski for themselves so they could have a feel for, uh, but, but anyway, it, it evolved by the late nineties. I think we had a pretty good system in place to at least teach people how to ski in a mono ski and advance um, things that you could create angles. Plus by then a shape ski was, was there, which as you would, as you would know, Chris has really helped mono skiers as much as anybody. So, um, yeah, we did have some good instructors, uh, but mostly it was just about finding your way and um, doing what you wanted to do and skiing, skiing how you wanted to ski. If you wanted an individual lesson or just wanted to go out and ski with a ski buddy, you could do that too. But uh, we found that, it, you know, in, in small groups, our first camp, I think we had 15 people. So we just put them in three groups of five and then we would kind of move them around as, as the week went on. And, it was just so successful that word of mouth got around and the next year we had 25 and wow. people, people thought, you know, uh, that what we were doing was, was groundbreaking and uh, it was a lot of fun and I, I think everybody enjoyed it and they still do. What was the social part? You talk about the social part. What were, what, you know, what, how did that work? What were the benefits? 
Well, because it wasn't all, you know, life's not all about skiing. It's about, you know, believe it or not, um, you can only ski so much, you know. Uh, so, you know, the, the uh, après ski, the, we would have dinner together and you could talk about anything from, you know, hey, what, what's the latest and greatest catheter that's on the market that I'm using that helps me? Or, hey, have you tried this? Hey, there's a, you know, and then right about that time, as you know, like a, the one-off was coming out, the off-road hand, hand cycle. Just different things that people could turn other people onto um, and, and talk about and discuss. And, hey, I'm having this problem. Or how did you overcome this? Um, it just, it was just, just social, you know, just, just anything you could think of that would come up in a social topic we could talk about. And it wasn't just about skiing. And there were uh, a few alcoholic beverages that, uh, would go around the room and the, and the stories got better. And the, I still keep in touch with people, you know, that were at these camps 20 years ago and we still laugh at you know, certain things. And, and, uh, and so anyway, that's how it evolved, but yeah, that, that's what it was really about is socializing and connecting with other people that are facing similar challenges. Well, it's, it's, it can feel so isolating when right. you have an accident, right? I mean, you have, you have your accident and you feel like, you know, to a certain extent, your life is over at least whatever life you had beforehand and none of your friends are in a wheelchair. Right. I mean, now they are, sure. but back then none of your friends and so so this is an opportunity to kind of get together and actually have peers i felt like for me i first started learning about my life in a chair when i started to compete went through the hospital you know went through went through sort of secondary rehab and did some of those things figured out how to get around and how to do a wheelie and how to how to take care of myself and do some of those things and stuff like that but didn't really figure out how to how to move forward and it, it sounds like that was a lot of what you guys did was trying to figure out what the you know trying to be able to set an, set a, a situation where you can have those conversations that you're not going to have with your able-bodied buddy absolutely like, hey what, what what's up with this i heard about this my doctor mentioned something i read about something what do you have and and did you have like a a wide range of people in terms of in terms of sort of life experience and uh, chronological experience in terms of time in a chair and those kinds of things or all or that yeah all of the above they, everybody was different from you know obviously the life of someone who has a visual impairment is going to be different than our life um, somebody who may be a quadriplegic we've had a couple of quads show up at our camps and we got them going in fact uh, one of them ended up being a pretty accomplished monoskier um, without the full use of his hands or triceps or any of that. Um, took him a long time. But yes, people from all different walks of life, you know, most people really enthusiastic, wanting to progress. But, you know, it's like real life. You get some, some other people thrown in there that might have been struggling a little bit and, you know, maybe had a negative outlook on it but they were there because someone talked them into it. And I think it benefited those kind of people even more so because they looked at what the positive outcomes could be. You know, they saw people actually enjoying their lives as someone with a disability, which as you know, when you're sitting in a hospital after 
being told that, you know, you're not going to walk again, you know, having any kind of quality of life is uh, pretty much a bonus at that point. Do you remember any specific times where, where like the light bulb went on, where you just saw this person, him or her, you know, whoever it was, just the light bulb go on and go, oh, wow. Okay. Life is okay. It's all good. Yeah. I've had that happen. I've had that happen quite a few times, actually, where you can just see it where, and um, one of one actually that I can, I can recall was uh, a good friend of ours who recently passed Danny Mativier. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny was a guy that just showed up basically on my doorstep in Winter Park looking to borrow a ski, he didn't want a lesson. This was back in the mid 90s and I was running the program, running the Sitski program at the time in Winter Park. Here comes this nice guy. He was hilarious and he had this funny accent and he was a character and he, all he wanted to do was borrow a ski. And I said, I should probably put a volunteer with you. And he's like, nah, I got this. And he was struggling a little bit. So I put a volunteer with him. And he, and he uh, after about a week, he comes to me and says, uh, hey, uh, Matt, how much do I owe you for renting the monoski? And I said, Dan, don't worry about it. You know, you're good. And he says, no, 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 come on. I, let, let, me, let me at least buy you a beer. So I go, okay. So we go to the bar and he goes, I said, when are you leaving? He goes, I got to go tomorrow. I'm running out of money. I got to get back home. Um, and I said, why don't you just stay at my house? And he says, well, I have a dog. And I said, well, I got a dog. And he goes, really? I could stay at your house? And I said, yeah, and I can even probably get you some comp lift tickets. We'll make it work. He ended up staying like a month and a half (laughs) at my house. (laughs) But I will say this, 15 years later, when he was going to the Paralympics in Salt Lake, well, it might have been 10 or 12 years later, but whenever it was, Dan sat down and wrote me a handwritten letter thanking me that I still have it. And, you know, it, uh, in fact, I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. But Dan wrote me a letter just saying how I made skiing really fun for him. And I made it accessible and available, not only that, but I made it fun for him. I didn't, I didn't teach Dan a lot about skiing, maybe a few you know, pointers in the beginning. But he took that and he went off and got the bug and started ski racing. And you know that, uh, you know, he, he, he just, but that's one of those stories where, I just, you know, met a guy and all of a sudden he's going to the Paralympics and he thanked me for it, for, for make, you know, helping him make that opportunity come true. Oh, what a great thing. And you, you do have to pay a little bit of justice to that, to that accent as well. People, yes. Dan, Dan was from Rhode Island, but <laughs> nobody could place his accent. People are like, oh, you, are you from New York? Are you from, you know, are you from Boston? You from, and they could figure out it was East Coast, but it was, uh, uh it was it was rhode island it was uh i'm trying to think of the name of the town i can't even think of the name of the town right now but he would come in and go how are you you know and that was that was the beginning of every day probably was it was every morning for you guys yeah so and anyway along the way you know you meet people like that special people and who knows dan probably would have gone on to to do good things had he not stayed you know ended up staying at my house but I just, I cherish those memories and people that, you know, just needed a little something, a little kickstart, a little, you know, and he saw how much fun I was having with skiing and, um, and uh, yeah, and there's some great stories with that too. So that, that was one. uh, um, 
one that I will always remember because of because uh, of the accent and because of the character that uh, Dan Mativier was. But some of these sports, like skiing, can be a scary sport. Uh, you know, sure. you you talked about scuba diving. I mean, some of these things when you have a community it makes it a little bit easier to do that, right? It makes it, a, I remember seeing, I mean, you talked about Jim Martinson where I called Jim after my first day of skiing and said, how do you make this thing turn? But I also skied with him at the end of that season and watched him and it was, it was just this relief for me because I didn't, because for the first time I, I realized that I could still ski. Even though I'd skied almost every day that winter, I didn't know if skiing could be the same. And there's there, there there's there's a big distinction there between it's like, oh, well, there's this cute little adaptive sport, or there's this real sport that's about doing what you need to do. And the thing is, with some of the groups you had, I'd imagine you had adversity in ability levels where some of these people are on the on the lower end. And some of these people are on the higher end and they look at the people on the higher end and go, oh, all right, now I see it. Now I understand how I can do it and I can talk to you and all of that stuff. Did you see people with that sense of being able to overcome that first sense of fear as a result of being part of this group? Absolutely. They could realize that it was attainable, you know, that, that somebody could ski. And you know what, along those same lines, Chris, Every once in a while, I'd, you know, meet someone and, and they'd say, oh, you know, they'd say, what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm, I'm a skier. And they're like, oh, you ski. And they give you a little pat on the back and just so patronizing. It's so nice that they let you guys ski, you know. And, and, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, come take a few runs with me, buddy. You see if you can keep up, that kind of thing. But you know, it, it wasn't like that at first. And you and I struggled learning how to ski, but I think once the methodology came in there, the equipment got better, uh, the, inst uh, the instruction got better. But yeah, absolutely. That was part of the motivation for the camp was to, you had the whole gamut. You had people that, we, we always, we didn't encourage never ever skiers to come to these camps. We always said, if you've taken a few lessons, at least, you know, at least if you've been in a ski, come ski with us. And I'll tell you, I've gotten some people from, you know, their third day of mono skiing, they came to the camp and they were, you know, they were skiing some blue runs by the, by the end of their fourth day and had moved up uh, quite considerably. And again, you see it in their face, you see it in their attitude. There's something, they're, they're accomplishing something. They're doing something, uh, maybe they thought they'd never, you know, like when you and I started, we never thought we would even be close to being, you know, as good as we were when we were able-bodied. And I don't think it quite got there, but for me, it got closer than I thought. I mean, with my skiing in a, on a monoski got better than I ever thought. It, if you would have told me that in 1989, I would have said, no, you're crazy. You, you mean I'd be able to ski everything on the mountain and, and ski in shoots and, uh, and, and steep, steep uh, bump runs and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I didn't know if that was believable, but again, when people, see that when they're just learning they see it's attainable and you know you can set a good example for them and uh yeah and and they get it the light bulb turns on and there you go the light bulb turns on and their whole world opens up right you think oh right. okay okay i can actually do this it might take a little bit of time it takes some instruction 
Right. It takes being able to see people who are relatively good. Were there any particular sports that made more of an impression on people than others? You talked about skiing, you talked about hand cycling, and you had a wide variety of different disabilities as well, right? So it wasn't just wasn't just people in wheelchairs. It was blind and amputees and arms yeah, and legs a, and all that stuff, right? Yeah, it was all physical disabilities. And um, believe it or not, the more I the more I uh, reached out and tried these other different adaptive sports. The one sport, and I, would, I don't even know if I'd call it a sport, it's more of an activity, is what you hit on was the scuba diving. This scuba diving is a, is a I mean, I, I've recently come to the realization that the ocean may be the most accessible place on the planet, if you think about it. Okay, um, what do you mean by that? Well, anytime, because of the zero gravity kind of thing, you're out of, you know, for someone like me, I'm out of my wheelchair, I'm free. I can go anywhere that any able-bodied person can go. Um, of course, there are some limitations with, with most adaptive sports or adaptive activities. There are a few limitations, but I can take someone who maybe they're, they're very involved and their, their, their disability is such that they, it's very, very challenging for them to do almost anything we can get them in the water with some help and they can experience something that you know not everybody can experience so scuba diving is very freeing too it's very liberating um so that's something that i really i, I didn't see it uh, 22 years ago when i first got certified but in the last five or six years i've seen it a lot more uh, people i'm trying to get more people certified and get them out there in the ocean and uh, it's a great sport for just about anyone with, with any disability. And so it's that feeling of weightlessness. There's also like a meditative part of hearing the breath go and, and it kind right. of relaxes you. And, and It's a balance too of all this other crazy stuff that, you know, I downhill mountain biking and wakeboarding and skiing. Those are all, I mean, I hate to use the word adrenaline sports, but they're they're, you know, they're pretty high end, uh, you know, get your heart racing kind of stuff. And at first I kind of went into scuba diving, kicking and screaming. I thought it would put me to sleep, quite frankly. Um, even though I love the water, I'm a pretty good swimmer. I just thought, ah, scuba diving, I'll do that when I'm in my 60s. Um, I was wrong, but I finally got talked into it and got certified. And it is a great balance between some of these other more physical activities that you do. And it is eye-opening and you get to see things and, and the, you get to travel to places all over the world. And, uh, you know, there's beautiful beaches and uh, it's not a bad gig. Well, that's something to be said for it, right? You're, you're not going to the cloudy, muddy, dark, <laughs> cold place to go scuba diving. You're going someplace enjoyable, someplace warm. You were, you were a diver, though. I mean, isn't that, that's how you had your, your accident, right? Was, was diving? I was. I was a springboard diver, not a the, not to be confused with scuba diving. I was a diver, right. uh, one and three meter. Um, did a little bit of five and ten meter platform when I was in college, but started out as a swimmer competitively when I was a kid, and it just something about diving. I was good on a trampoline. Like I said, I used to get upside down on skis, and I always felt comfortable in the air. So I was a, a diver in high school and uh, all American and. Dove uh, on the swim team in college as well. Uh, after my freshman year, they disbanded the swim team. Um, so 
I started I, I started skiing because I was uh, at a school that was 20, 20 miles from the ski area. So, but yes, that's how I originally got hurt was a diving accident. Um, all I hit was water, very strange freak thing. I broke my uh, ninth thoracic vertebrae. What was that? I've never asked you this. What was that like? I mean, I, I don't remember. I had a skiing accident. I don't remember anything after my ski popping off. I was conscious, but I was in shock. And right. you, you were in the water. Like I was, I was lying on the ground. Do I was in 200 remember, feet. Yeah. I was remember in what happened? Yeah. You know, it's funny how I, I don't remember the exact uh, impact um, necessarily, but when I think back to it, I can remember all of a sudden I knew I couldn't move my legs. I'm treading water with my arms and my buddies are in a boat about a hundred feet away. And it didn't look that bad to them. It wasn't like I smacked on my back. It just, I arched my back when I went into the water and it just cracked a vertebrae. But you went I knew from pretty high, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was about a hundred feet. So, <laughs> so that's enough to well, get your attention yeah but see what people don't understand is i was to the point where 65 or 70 feet was like nothing to me i was doing two and a half from 70 feet uh i was doing double twisting back one and a half from 60 feet always always made sure the water was deep enough kind of thought i knew what i was doing but i pushed it a little too far and uh just over rotated on a on a dive and uh that was it. But yes, the, I remember that moment looking up and my friends thought, well, that didn't look that bad. So, Hey, do that again. You know? And I was like, Hey, I'm hurt. And they didn't take me seriously at first. A guy that was in the boat used to lifeguard with me. He kind of saw a look on my face. He jumped in, he swam up to me and said, what's going on? I said, um, I think I'm paralyzed. He said, all right, let's get you in the boat. And we tried to do it the best we could, um, but yeah, it was all looking back on it. It was the the term surreal, I think, is overused too. But uh, um, that's a pretty fitting term for for what was going on at that point. And then the the flight for life had to come, and I got in a heli I got my first helicopter ride, and uh, they took me to Lake Powell, Lake Powell, Southern Utah. There's okay. a trauma center in Grand Junction. And they took me there where uh, they took some x-rays. And then the next morning is when they told me that, uh, that, that uh, I was paralyzed and I did a pretty good number on it. And I can't remember the exact terminology they used, but it was a, they said it was a long shot if I was ever going to walk again, basically. Wow. But, but in the, so you didn't have that panic in the water. I mean, you sound like you're pretty calm when you're in the water. I, I kind of performed my own rescue in a way. I mean, my buddy was with me, but I was, I was yelling to the boat, is there anything flat so I can lay on, you know, because I was yeah. a lifeguard. Yeah. So Backboard, I was yeah. calm because I, I could tread water with my arms and I knew I could breathe. I was above water. I wasn't going to die. I just had to figure out what the hell was going on with my legs or wasn't going on with my legs. So that was, that was obviously the scary part, not knowing um you know at that point you're still thinking well maybe it's just a little trauma maybe it's 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 temporary um so they laid me flat on the boat but yes it was uh um and then of course even when they tell you that you're like oh come on how could i be paralyzed i didn't you know i just dove into some water um 
how can I be paranoid? Then they showed me the x-ray and then it starts sinking in. And oddly enough, when they said I was going to Craig Hospital, I, I, had, I had actually heard of Craig Hospital before that. Uh, but I'd never known anyone in a wheelchair. Um, but I found out real soon, I wasn't going to Craig Hospital to get healed. I wasn't going to come out of Craig Hospital walking, which I think I did initially thought. I thought, oh, I'm going to the best spinal, spinal place in the country, in the world. I'm going to walk out of there. That's not what that place is all about. That place if you have an incomplete injury and they can work with you, sure, you can get stuff back. But their, their real job there was to teach me how to uh, live a life as a paraplegic. And they do some interesting things too, where they had sort of that intermediate housing too there, right? At Craig, Correct. where you're in the hospital and then you kind of have, a, have a, an apartment like right next to the hospital where you can kind of live on your own and see how to how good you are at, at right. living on your own right absolutely they had some apartments right across the street so the last week or 10 days that you're there before they discharge you they put you in this apartment across the street just hey you know just for comfort if you if something comes up and you need uh you need to go back into the hospital it's right across the street and uh, if everything goes well then they send you on your merry way and uh, and away you go. So you didn't have an aversion to water or an aversion to risk after after your accident. Didn't didn't engender no, that kind in of fact, worry I, you're feeling. In fact, I I started bungee jumping with some friends of mine that had their own homemade equipment. And I'm, I I th I think you may have heard this story, but I. I went back uh, one time and jumped off of the Dirty Devil Bridge uh, near Lake Powell, at the top of Lake Powell. It was 250 feet from the bridge to the water and the bungee broke. This was three years after my accident. So apparently I hadn't learned my lesson, but um, the, there was 150 that was after pounds. we bungee jumped. That was after we bungee jumped in New Zealand, right? Correct, correct. But, but I thought it was so fun the first time, and I was showing some guys some pictures of it, and this one guy says, oh, you got to come with us, this one friend of mine I worked with. He, I go, well, who do you guys jump with? And he goes, well, we do it ourselves. We buy our own gear. We hook it up. It's illegal. You're trespassing. But they had this book with all these bridges all over the southwestern part of the United States, and they would find these bridges, these suspension bridges, and hook up to them and jump off. And I'd seen videos of them and I was like, this is amazing. This is really amazing. So I thought, okay, I went and jumped with them a few times. And then uh, one, the, the one time I went, it actually broke. And thank God there was water underneath me. Um, but after that. So what did that mean? It broke. So you didn't, you didn't, I mean, you effectively fell 250 feet. Well, but yeah, it also it, had slowed you down. Correct. Correct. It slowed me down. I recoiled back up. Oh, I have it on video. It, it was so long ago. It was on VHS. I, I have it on VHS. So one of these days I'll dig it up if I want to laugh. But uh, it, it's it's amazing. I mean, real quick, everybody else that does that was doing this, the they would jump right next to where the bungee was attached because they would just jump head first or feet first. Well, I didn't feel comfortable just falling through the air without the use of my legs. So I like to do somersaults. I felt like 
I'm in control, at least if I get a little bit of momentum and I can tumble forward. So I would do like four somersaults. Well, in order to do that, they didn't want me to get tangled up. These are tucks? Like, are are you able to get in like a full tuck? Uh, More of of a pike. More of like a pike position. Um, Because they wrap my legs up so they wouldn't be flying around. And so I would just, I would, the Chris, the bungee, the bungee cord itself weighed 150 pounds and it's hanging off the bridge. So they had to hold me in place. And when I was ready to go, they would just let, basically let me go. And the weight of the bungee would pull me off the bridge. And so that's why when it broke, but, but they didn't want me to get tanked. And since I was doing somersaults, they didn't want me to get tangled up in the rope. So they moved me over about 20 feet from where the bungee was attached that created a little bit of a pendulum okay. if that makes sense yeah. and that's what ended up you know making the bungee break and i splashed in the water and my first thought was i got 150 pounds of bungee cord strapped yeah. to my body i'm gonna i'm gonna die yeah and finally i came up for what i thought was my last breath to undo the last carabiner and i looked around and it was all floating all all the bungee cord was floating around me 150 pounds of- <laughs> So I thought, okay, I'm not going to die. So after that, I kind of said, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you ought to slow down a little bit with the, uh, with the craziness. Is it the, it was it for you? Was it that feeling of falling? Was that the thing that you really enjoyed? Cause I remember bungee jumping and you get the bit of free fall and it's the stomach in your throat yep. and you go, Oh, okay. Okay. Cause I also remember being sort of cocky to a certain extent, once the bungee stopped, right? Because you're falling and then the bungee catches and then you bounce back up and you're like, oh, okay, cool. I'm good, I'm good. I've done the whole thing. And then all of a sudden I was falling again and it was the same the same sensation. Is that the thing that you like? Is that the thing that drew you to, uh, to the bungee jumping? I think so. And the fact that these guys were a little, you know, they kind of had a screw loose and I liked the cut of their jib and but it was very, I mean, it sounds funny, but they were very safe about it. They had, they were all climbers and they had, you know, climbing harnesses and backup climbing harnesses. And they had each had over a hundred jumps with not so much as a scratch. Mine, my, what happened to me. Until you show up. Yeah, then I show up and just ruin the whole thing. Cause I don't think they ever did it again after that. That was like, you know, that the funny part about it is there was guys in a boat down there that were filming it they didn't know me they knew some other guys up on the bridge and they came up and they were they were like are you okay and i said yeah and they're gathering up all the bungee cord and they said jump on the boat and i grabbed on the side and i'm pulling myself up and uh i asked the one guy hey can you grab my legs i'm paralyzed and he's like holy shit we got to get this guy to a hospital he's paralyzed and of course i said no 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 see that's my wheelchair up on the bridge i'm already paralyzed and they're like, they just shook their head and looked at me like, man, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, you have a death wish or something. So, um, but that was another story that just, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was kind of the adrenaline and just the fact that it was something different and something that other people weren't doing. And, and I got a kick out of it until that happened. And then it was like, okay, some, someone's trying to tell me something. And uh, on a little, little think about what you're doing. But was this part of, I mean, obviously not bungee comp, bungee jumping, but was this part of what you were trying to, trying to share with people with adaptive adventures where, 
hey, yes, you had an accident, but you're not you're not damaged. You're not you're not fragile. Because sometimes coming out of the hospital, I don't know how you felt. I came out of the hospital feeling like, you know, if I if 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 I sat on the wrong thing for a moment, I was gonna have a bed sore and I was going to be flat on my face for for four months to get the thing to heal. You know, I felt totally fragile when I first came out of the hospital. Do you, did you feel that? And did, is that some of what you, what you helped with the people with the camps? Yeah, absolutely. There was a little bit of that, you know, the fear of the unknown, you know, I mean, I didn't, I, I had a hard time adjusting to it. And I think skiing really just, uh, I turned the corner with skiing. Once I was able to actually make a couple turns and come down a run and then get on and off the chairlift by myself. It was moments like that, that I realized that, okay, I can still lead an independent life. I'm gonna be fine. It's just gonna be a little bit different. But uh, you're right, at first there's that sense of, you do feel a little bit frail. Um, you, do, you don't know what your limitations are gonna be and what challenges lie ahead. And, uh, um so yeah there's there's all that and and how to solve those problems as well right because i remember initially learning how to mono ski or, or mono skiing and thinking how do i get this thing to the snow how do i get right. this 35 pound hunk of metal that is totally cumbersome that doesn't really want to sit on your lap or anything first you have to you have to go and do a curl, put this thing one arm, put this thing onto your lap, trying not to damage your legs. And But when you figure that out, you think, well, I can go skiing. That's it. I can leave right. my house. I can get there, take my ski, get everything all set up, get in, go ski, come back, and I'll ski with people or I won't ski with people or whatever it is. I have the option. Is the independence, do you think that's the biggest thing for people, the biggest hurdle is, is recognizing that they can be independent? That is a huge hurdle. And I, I hate to admit it, but back then, I, well, you, you even coined the phrase back then, the benevolent passerby. Every once in a while, you, you must rely on the benevolent passerby. You have to- Was that me? That sounds like Sarah. <laughs> Sarah Will, who, excuse me. Would you like to help no, me but there me? are situations, trust me, you and I are, are not, uh, you know, uh, not that you know, we're more alike than you think in right. some ways because we want to be independent. We don't want to have someone help. But, you know, now that I'm 57 years old, I'm starting to be a little bit smarter about the whole thing. I'm, I, you know, if I don't have to pump my gas, I'll you know, I got a guy at the corner that'll come out and do it for me. Um, you know, there's certain, there are shortcuts and there's certain things that I absolutely wouldn't have done 25 years ago. But by the same token, there were guys, you know, uh, like Michael Norton, who absolutely would refuse help. And even if it was up a flight of stairs, he would get out, hop up on his butt, bring his wheelchair behind him, that, you know, you kind of, you have to draw the line between being fiercely independent and being smart and just, and, and being, uh, you know, a little more cognizant of the situation. So I, don't I think that's it, but it's also probably something that you guys shared in your dinner time and things like that too, where you're sharing equipment, where you're looking at, at, 
uh, wheelchairs that fit better. I, I remember leaving the hospital <coughs> with a uh, with a chair that was 16 inches wide. I'm right. now in a 14-inch wide chair. Uh, you know, just going from going from heavier to lighter. Looking at how how you're how you're able to put your chair in your car and and sharing best practices and best best uh, best equipment. It's all about that, and that's that's part of uh, you know when I talk about you know socialization and and camaraderie on and off the slopes and at any events that we do, it's all part of that. You know, it's not just about the sport. The sport is kind of what unites us and brings us together um, and puts smiles on our faces. But it's also about you know, hey, I'm having trouble doing this, or or just taking a moment and looking over and seeing how another guy does something, putting his wheelchair in his car. It's amazing how little thing, I just got a new wheelchair and the foot, when I took, I still have to take the wheels off my, you know, uh, take the wheels off my chair to put the chair in my car. Mm -hmm. And I lift it up onto the footrest. Well, this new chair, the casters won't allow me to lift it up onto my footrest. So I didn't think about that before I got the chair, but, there's just, there's so much to think about. Hold on, let's describe that a little bit. So you kind of lift it up and you put it on the nose on the footrest. Correct. So, so for us, that's, you're, you're resting on it as you're able to take the wheels off. So it's a, it's a bit of a tenuous position sometimes, right? Because if something moves, then you can be on your nose quickly falling out of your car. Indeed. So this one doesn't work. So what, so how'd you, how'd you solve this, the uh, problem? Well, I'm still working on it. Naps. <laughs> the chair, I've only been in the chair for a couple of weeks. Um, I, I, I've, I figured out I'm working on a few things to, to problem solve with it, but uh, yeah, it used to be just, I, I would turn the chair around and then lift it up from the back axle onto the footrest. Well, now when I lift it up onto the footrest, the casters hit. So it's not, it's kind of, it's not stable. So I'm working through it. I just don't want to scratch because otherwise what happens is the, the chair falls forward and you scratch it up on the pavement. Yeah. Um, so my other solution to that is just get a bunch of, you know, tape and, and, <laughs> and tape up the front of my chair so it will get scratched. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things, you, the ways you can look at it, but Independence is a painter's tape. Yeah, right. There you go. But I mean, independence is a relative thing. These days, I do. Um, I don't generally ask for help. But I do find myself accepting it every once in a while. Uh, when someone asks for it, when someone asks me if I want help, when 20 years ago, I would have said no, thank you. But um, so yeah, things change, you get smarter, you get a little older. And, um, you know, hopefully, that's not such a bad thing to, you know, if someone's offering you help once in a while to, to take it, I think that's, that's probably the smart way to go. Cause sometimes you would say, no, I'm good. Thanks. And they would help you anyway. So. Well, yeah, I mean, and it works both ways, right? We're talking about carrying the mono ski. I was always amazed at how I was sort of struggling up the hill to them to, to get over, you know, to go wherever I was going. And you're just like, okay, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And you get right to the top of the hill. Like you're just about to crest. And somebody says, Hey, can I give you a hand? And you're like, where were you back there? Like back there, back there. I could have used you now. Now you just want the glory, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Another chair thing. It's funny. I actually contemplated because when you fly, 
that's exactly what happens too, right? They tip your chair up right on the front of your chair. And, and our chairs, granted, they are what we use every single day, but you got a new chair. It's like buying a new car. You don't want somebody to take their key if they still have a key and stripe your car. Right. It's effectively the same thing. And so I contemplated, I haven't done this yet. I'm still considering it of, of actually going to a fabric store. I, I looked it up, but I didn't call them. I don't think. And buying like Kevlar fabric was what I was thinking and epoxying Kevlar fabric just to that front part of your chair, like on the, on the, on the little bend where invariably that's where they're going to put it. And then, then I'd have, I'd have a bulletproof chair, which would be, which would be awesome and hopefully never needed. Makes sense. But these are some of the things that you do. What was the, was there anything that you saw that was at one of your camps that was like the craziest thing somebody had adapted in a way that you never would have imagined that you went, wow, that is so cool and makes perfect sense now, but I never would have considered it. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. As, as you're thinking, I'll, I'll prime the pump to a certain extent. I went to Canadian Nationals up at Sunshine uh, and, and it was freezing. It was like two jacket cold kind of thing. And we were staying at the Banff Springs Hotel and it had a hot spring underneath it. Banff, Banff Springs Hotel was one of those old time hotels where people would go for like the summertime, right? They'd, they'd take the train up back in the day with their locker and they'd be there for the, for the whole time. Therapeutic uh, hot springs and stuff like that. So being so cold, we went down to the pool to go to go warm up. It was a hot spring. You go, you go warm up and thaw out, hopefully. And so I went down, took the elevator down, and the pool was down one more flight. And it was actually down a flight of stairs. The elevator didn't service it. So I'm still a newbie. I mean, this is this is 1990, 1991, I think it was, 1991. And I don't, I don't know anything. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still isolated to a certain extent. I was in college. I was the only guy in a wheelchair in college. So I'm just, I, everybody knew who I was because I really stuck out of the crowd. I mean, you talk about a minority. I was, I was right. one in 2000, right? And like, oh yeah, you're the wheelchair guy. Like, <laughs> yep, yep. And probably can't really hide about that at all. So these guys who I was with, I was with Kenny Lacombe, uh, Eric Bandierly, who, who was SAT back then. Uh, Dan, uh, Dan, Dan, uh, what was Dan's last name uh, from San Diego? I can't think of his last name right now. But with a bunch of these guys, they turned around, they grabbed onto the railing, they bumped down the stairs. I was like, oh, that looks cool. Okay, no big deal. And did that, not thinking what goes down must go up. And so did the pool thing, got up. And Essa and Eric and, uh, and Kenny had basically like a seatbelt, like a webbing seatbelt that they had made. And they just strapped themselves into their chair and climbed up the steps in their chair. They would use, they'd go back in an extreme wheelie and push on the, on the step and hold onto the railing and pull themselves up. And I was like, wow, that's like, I never would have thought of that. And you probably have seen that stair climbing with Eric Kondo as well. well and eBay still, he, he would do it with a, he, he had a locking break so that he does when now. He, yeah. When he would pull himself up, it would automatically lock so he could regrip. And he was really big into that. And I, yeah, my hat goes off to all those guys that, uh, um, 
can do stuff like that. I mean, I even tried it a few times and I was like, mm, I don't think this is going to, I think I'm going to have to, you know, this is going to be one of those things where I'm going to go, Hey, yo, brother, can you help me up these 10 steps? Um, That's what I did that day. It was one of those oh, like, Hey, yeah. Okay. So how about one of you in front and one of you in back and we'll just do the Cleopatra thing and you can lift me up. But I did go and get webbing afterwards. And, and I don't know that I ever completely mastered it, but I definitely got it, got to the point where I could actually do it. And, and then I saw Kondo and Kondo came to Sarah, Will and I used to do a camp in Vail and you came to the camp in Vail, right? Yeah, so we did. I know you and Joel came. Absolutely. And, and so Kondo, we were in the hotel, we were going to go to the gym across the street and we went out and there was a flight of stairs and he turned around and he, he climbed stairs like as easily in his wheelchair as anybody walks upstairs. Wow. And I looked at him and went, wow. And he just, all he does is he grabs the railing with his, his right hand and his right wheel with his left hand. And he pulls with the right hand and pushes with the left hand and goes up like totally controlled. We'll go down that same way, go down the steps, totally controlled. And so I watched him do this and I was like, wow, that's so cool. Like, that's awesome that you've done that. And then it was my turn. And I thought, okay. And I sort of wobbled up the first couple of steps and, and then, okay. And then I kind of, I kind of got it as I was going along. I'm like, okay, this is all working out. And then I got to the top and you just want to reach back a little bit further. The railing ends. <laughs> you kind of have to muscle that last one. So I made the fateful mistake. I grabbed onto the railing with both hands and went to just kind of pull, pull myself up. And of course my chair squirted out from underneath me and just, tumbled down the stairs and so but i imagine you've seen a lot of that kind of stuff just people who've who've adopted in such a way that you never would have yeah i i remember i can't remember who it was but first time i saw a guy go through a narrow doorway i thought he would have to get out of his chair and crawl through and then take his chair apart he said nah and he got up on leaned up took one of his wheels off and slowly inched through a narrow doorway with one of his wheels on, on, sitting on the side. And then he reached through, grabbed the wheel and put it back on. And I looked at, I just looked at him and I went, that was amazing. I didn't even try that maneuver. I thought, I, I, you know, that was one of those, don't try this at home. I thought I'd hurt myself. So uh, yes, the uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And there are some people out there that can uh, do some pretty amazing things. What are you doing for fun or for fitness now? Well, right now I am nursing a sore on my tailbone. Mm. Uh, I had shoulder surgery. It's a long story. I had pretty major shoulder surgery two years ago. Um, and five days into my stay at the rehab center, I de uh, developed a sore uh, on my tailbone, on my uh, sacrum area. 30 years in as a paraplegic, never had a sore. And it took them five days to give me one there. So that healed up along with my shoulder. It was gone for about a year and it just popped up about two months ago, riding my hand cycle. And it was, it was completely gone. So I kind of, you know, kind of took it for granted that we're good. And uh, riding those, uh, um, you know, the Force RX bikes when you're laying down, uh, a lot of the sweat will run down towards that area. And uh, apparently it's a, 
that and the fact that I had lost about 12 pounds um, was the perfect, uh, perfect scenario for the perfect sword. Storm right there. Yeah. So um, I, I, I got on my bike for the first time in seven weeks. I got on my bike Saturday and went out and rode. So I'm getting back into it. Um, but to be honest, for the last, really for the last six weeks, I have been laying on my stomach and my side and trying to get over this, this sore that, you know, they warned you about those, you know, when, when we were in uh, rehab and that Craig hospital back in 1988, they pounded that into you, take care of your butt, take care of your butt. And I did for 30 years and I was under somebody else's care when it happened, you know, and couldn't really turn myself and it was hard to self-advocate because I was on pain meds after shoulder surgery. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what happened. And I, I'm hopefully won't take that for granted anymore. Uh, that, that spot on my sacrum uh, will be compromised from, from now on. And, uh, uh, but hopefully it won't, you know, once it heals up again, I'll be smarter about it and I'll continue to ski and bike and do what I do. Are you preparing for the ski season? as well, right? Are you're looking forward to the ski season being fit, shoulder fit, those kinds of yes. things? Yes. Um, I'm a little apprehensive, um, but, and I still don't know what's gonna happen with the, you know, with skiing during the, the, during the zombie apocalypse still upon us. I don't know what what's gonna happen, but I do plan on skiing. Um, I don't know how much I'm gonna do. I got in one day last year. I gotta be honest, it didn't go so well. The skiing part, my shoulder was fine, but the pushing around and loading and unloading the chairlift uh, still bothered me a little bit. So I had a PRP injection as you did years ago. I had one done just about two months ago in my other shoulder. So we're still kind of hoping that, that uh, um, I can avoid surgery in my other shoulder at some point too. And so you've also, you've moved out of, out of adaptive adventures now. And, but, but still, I mean, you still have to be involved with this kind of a, with some of this community, with some of the activity. I mean, this have to be some of your, some of your great friends that you've established with, with skiing and water skiing and all sorts of that kind of stuff. I mean, right now it sounds like you're not doing it. And a lot of people probably aren't doing it right. because of COVID, but are, will you continue to do that? Absolutely. I will, I will always be an advocate, not only uh, and support not only adaptive adventures, but just adaptive sports and recreation. I mean, my name's out there people I get calls and emails still every every week, I get contacted by people that want to know about, you know, a certain activity or how to get involved or um, it's slowed down, obviously, the last few months, but uh, I still get them. I still get, uh, you know, questions and people want to know about what's the best way to do this. I'm also still a mentor with the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation. So they, they point me in a, in a direction every once in a while to mentor someone who might be going through a bad time or uh, needs, a little, needs a little push. So I do stay busy with that for sure. Definitely. If will you, will you ski mostly if you do ski this winter, will you ski mostly at Winter Park or will you be all over or where where might you be? That's another good question. Uh, depends on where I'm needed. I I always used to just travel to where I mean, I used to go to um, 
gosh, for 25 years, I went, I went this last year, um, even though I only skied one day. I, I go to places like um, Deadwood, South Dakota. Really? Because there's, a, there's an organization there called Ski for Light, and they do an annual um, event. And they have a hill there with a 1,000 vertical uh, called Terry Peak. So I also created a camp in Duluth, Minnesota 16 years ago, um, a monoski camp out there that I will probably go to in February. So again, that's about, that's in Duluth. That makes Fraser look tropical in the winter. It's very, very cold Duluth, Minnesota, but- uh, Fraser, Colorado, which often calls itself the coldest place on earth, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, we want people to come here and vacation. Why don't we advertise that, that it's just so cold. You, um, yeah, it's ridiculous. But yeah, I go wherever, uh, wherever I'm needed. And if I go free skiing, it's probably gonna be to Winter Park um maybe a few days at Vail. i always try to get to telluride when i can um so we'll just we'll see what's uh just just on the way out what's the best pe best way for people to build a community you've you've been somebody who's built a community what's the best way for other people to do it uh i always i always thought it was first of all you just have to have a lot of passion and surround yourself with a lot of smart people that that have uh that share your mentality and that's to have fun i assume your mentality pretty much yeah you got it you got it awesome well matt thank you so much for joining us i hope you you heal up quickly and get strong both shoulder and and sore but this is this has been absolutely it's been great to connect with you and to hear your stories and i don't think i'd heard that bungee story so for people who, who watched or people who watched a little bit, this will be on Facebook Live. So, you, and it'll be, it's on Facebook Live now, but you can also go to the One Revolution channel and watch it in our feed, or you can go to the One Revolution channel on YouTube. These will all be housed there. They actually will be edited a little bit. So it'll be a little bit cleaner, not that we had any, any real problems while we were here, but please go to the One Revolution YouTube channel or to the One Revolution page on Facebook. Matt, again, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to connect and look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. My pleasure. Uh, it was great talking to you and, and watching your career too over the years. Uh, congratulations on that and keep doing what you're doing. It's uh, great to see. Thank you, sir. Take care.